0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter seven. We're going to be finishing up the story of Noah and the flood today, as you can tell from what was just read. But before we begin, why don't we pause for one more word of prayer. Father, we come now to you, and Lord, we humble ourselves before your word. We ask, Lord, that you would speak. We know that your word is living and active, Lord, able to pierce, uh, Lord, all the way down to the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Father, we just pray that you would, um, would reveal to us your will and also strengthen us to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Someone in my Connect group this past Thursday night <coughs> reminded me of a, a comic strip that I had once seen. And I, I want you to picture this. I wasn't able to, to f- get permission to show it, but... Uh, I want you to picture it in your mind, okay? In in the foreground, or I'm sorry, in the background, picture Noah's Ark sailing away into the distance, and the heavy rains coming down. And then in the foreground of the comic strip, picture two unicorns looking at each other in horror, okay? And the one unicorn says to the other, that was today? So that's what happened to the unicorns, right? It's a really bad feeling to to miss the boat, right? really bad feeling. Recently, I and some of my friends made plans to go out on a charter boat, go fishing out in the ocean. And man, I was looking forward to it. Made the plans, bought the tickets, prepared all the supplies, got a good night's sleep, got up early got in the car, we, we actually we had a big enough group that we had two carloads, one from one location, one from another location, and we were going to meet there at the boat. Well, the one, one carload that I wasn't in arrived on time, boarded the, the boat as planned. However, my carload, we got lost. And we, we um, by the time we figured it out, we, you know, entered in the right coordinates into the GPS and we, we booked it to where we were supposed to be, and I kid you not, we were literally pulling into the parking lot and we watched that boat as it left the harbor and went out to sea. And there was nothing we could do. I mean, I, I'm a good swimmer, but I wasn't going to jump in and swim after them. Uh, we, all we could do is, is stand there, you know, with our mouths open and just feel very helpless and disappointed. Don't want to miss that boat, right? Of course, our lives were, were not endangered by our missing of the boat just a good time and, and the price of our tickets. But if we set all these silliness and uh, trivialities sort of aside here and, and consider for just a moment how tragic it would have been to miss the Ark, um, we want to spend our time sort of thinking about that this morning. I've been captivated this week by uh, some of the, the meditations that Peter, the Apostle Peter, had on... Noah and the Ark. Uh, of all the New Testament writers, he seems to be the one that refers to it the most. Jesus referred to Noah and the Ark as well. I, I referred to that last week. But the, the rest of the New Testament references come from Peter, so I'm going to be referring to him a lot this morning. And like I said, I was really captivated by uh, Peter's thought here in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 18-20. through 20. And there's a lot in this passage that I don't have time to get into this morning, but there's just one observation I want you to make, so I'm going to read it for you here, starting in verse 18. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, that is, now in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. As I said, there's too much there for us to unpack it completely, and that passage always raises a ton of questions in our our mind. But the one thing I want you to notice here is, is even Peter just marveling at the fact that there were only a few people who came safely through the Flood. And for some reason, to me, just putting a number on it, eight people, eight people. Out of everyone in the world, eight people made it through the Flood. I mean, you can count that on two, two hands, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I've got extra fingers, right? That's how few people made it through the flood. My my goal this morning, as we, we think about this story, is that I want you to forever, when you when you think about Noah and the flood, to remember this number, to remember the number eight, and as you remember that number, to to know and and to know it with all your heart, that what God says that very thing he will surely do. Right? When God says he's going to do something, he will surely do it. And so this is at the same time both a warning for those who do not believe and it is a promise to those who do believe. And we're going to look at it this morning from both perspectives. First, I want you to consider that God's threats are not idle. He doesn't make idle threats. Have you ever known a a family, and I'm not thinking of anyone in particular here, but have you ever known a a family where the parents make a lot of idle threats? Right? They say, oh, you know, sweetie, don't do that. Or else. Always making threats but never following through and uh, consequently the, the children just run amok Sometimes we see this with politicians too, right? Drawing of red lines and say, daring rogue nations, don't cross that red line. So they cross it. And so we move the line and say, Well, what I really meant was don't cross this line, right? And they cross it and dare you to upset the world peace. For many people today, the, the threats of judgment through through God's word, through scripture is simply an idle threat right for most people the threats of of scripture if most people it, you know if they know nothing else about about god 's word they know that that God is a god who will punish sin right but it doesn't have much impact on them it doesn't it doesn't concern them they don't They're not concerned that it impacts them in any way. They they think that God's threats are idle. And as I'm reading uh, the account of Noah and the flood, it it occurs to me that the ancient people of Noah's day were no different. The ancient people of Noah's day were, were warned repeatedly through Noah. I think Noah, in his case, The the warning came through him in two really powerful ways. First, it it came through in Noah's words themselves. He was actually a, as First Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter two five says, Noah was a herald or a preacher of righteousness. First Peter three, nineteen through twenty, which I, I just read to you, Peter speaks of the spirit of Christ, which is the spirit of prophecy, preaching through Noah to his generation. You know, when a, when a prophet speaks, it's by the power of the spirit. And the scriptures say that the spirit of Christ is the spirit of prophecy. So, in a sense, Christ was there preaching to the generation of Noah. right? Imploring with them to repent and to heed the warning. Even though we don't have any recorded sermons of Noah's, I wish I could hear some of Noah's sermons. As a preacher, I like to read other preachers' sermons, right? We don't know what exactly Noah said to his generation, but we know that he was a herald of righteousness to them. Noah was not silent. And furthermore, God didn't say to Noah, Psst, Noah, come here. See all those fools around you? I'm going to wipe them all out with a flood, but don't tell anybody. Right? He didn't do that. He didn't tell Noah to keep it to himself. But what did he do? He warned Noah as a prophet, and he did that so that he might warn his generation. Now, as a modern-day preacher of righteousness, that's what I am as a pastor, my heart really goes out to Noah. You know Why? Noah preached for over a hundred years you know, to repent, to get ready for the judgment. And yet he did not see one single person come over to his side. He didn't see one single convert. He preached for over a hundred years. It's longer than probably I or you will live. And yet he didn't win over one single convert except for perhaps his own family. Was Noah a bad preacher? I don't think so. In fact, I I know he wasn't because the best preachers embody their message. And Noah embodied his message. He lived it. He didn't just preach it, he lived it. He didn't just preach saying, hey, believe in the Lord and prepare for his judgment. He Literally, every day, visibly, was preparing for the flood that was coming upon the earth. I mean, you could probably see the ark taking shape and rising up on the horizon for all to see. So Noah didn't only preach this with his words, but he preached it with his deeds. And I think his generation saw him persisting year after year. They they saw him gathering the animals as God sent the animals his way. They saw him gathering the food onto the ark. And they probably even perhaps saw him as God warned Noah seven days early. Right? Seven days ahead of the flood, God speaks to Noah and says, "You know, okay, it's time to load up. They probably even saw that. And then after they load up, the flood itself came. And in, in verses 6 and 11 of, of chapter 7, we learn that it came in the 600th year of Noah's life. First time I read that, I said, well, well, that's a nice round number. They're probably just rounding, right? But no, I mean, it gets really specific here. Verse, in verse 11, it says that in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, the floods came. And I, I was thinking about that, and you know, I thought, this isn't just a round number. This is is another aspect of the fact that Noah's life itself became the sign. You know, God had a way of of making his prophets a living illustration of their message. And on the 600th year of Noah's life, time was up. God let the the fountains of of the deep burst forth, the waters rushed up, from below and at the same time he opened up the windows of heaven and the the waters came down in almost a decreation. If you look back at Genesis chapter 1 on on the second day of creation God separated the waters from the waters and here we see in an act of decreation the waters coming back together and, and completely wiping out everything on the face of the earth. And all this to say that Through Noah's words and his deeds, God made it abundantly clear to the ancient people that judgment was coming. Yet to them, it seemed to be an idle threat. And not only did they not join Noah, but Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3 that the people scoffed at him. I think there's an emboldening that happens when someone warns and then it doesn't happen right away, right? And there's an emboldening effect to having a majority on your side, right? Noah was the minority in this situation. And I think that people begin to scoff as they, their side gains momentum and they look at the, the side of someone like a prophet saying something and they scorn them for they're the only ones saying it, they're the only ones believing it. And they mistook God's slowness in bringing about the flood for an idle threat instead of seeing it for what it was, which was God's patience with them. God waited patiently, gave them a hundred-year-plus warning. God's doing the the same thing today. He's doing the same thing today. We see here that at the appointed time, God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He did it exactly as he said. You know, the the biblical writers didn't have bold and italics and underlining. If you could see my sermon right now, I'm crazy with like bold, italics, underlining, so I can glance down and see something quickly, highlighting stuff. The ancients didn't have that. So the way they emphasized something was to repeat it, and kind of the ultimate way to emphasize something was to repeat it three times or more. And what we see here is that at the end of Genesis chapter seven, as we're, it's describing the waters prevailing upon the earth, it, it comes to this point where the waters have not only covered the Earth, but there's a description of the waters even covering the highest mountaintops by a measure of 15 cubits. So we can kind of surmise that. I mean, if there there was a a massive flood upon the Earth, probably a lot of animals and people would seek high ground. You think perhaps maybe some people survived on the tippy-top most of the mountains, but... It was not to be. Even the highest mountaintops were covered and even the strongest swimmer would have given out. And the writer of Genesis here emphasizes the totality, the universality of the destruction upon all life. He repeats it three times or more. Look here in verse 21 of chapter 7. He says, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. That's one time, right? And then verse 22, he's going to repeat it again. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. That's twice. And then he repeats it at least a third time here in verse 23. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Get the idea that this was a total destruction upon the earth, and no one was spared. No one. God did exactly what he threatened to do, and he did it without altering from it at all. Secondly, he did it in his time, in his time. A hundred years seems like a a long time to us, but God's timing is perfect. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10, these familiar words. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord... One day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. God's timing is perfect. And thirdly, we see that God is no respecter of persons. You know, there were mighty men on the earth at that time, we, we found out at the beginning of chapter 6. Mighty men, men of renown. I, I can imagine being that close to uh, the original creation that there were undoubtedly people of great wisdom, people of great beauty and skill and charisma. And they had numbers on their side. They're, they were the majority. The polls were trending in their direction. Their ap- approval ratings were way up. Public opinion was on their side, but God is no respecter of these things, is he? None of those things mattered to God. Peter makes this point in 2 Peter chapter 2. It was our New Testament reading this morning. He, he basically says, if God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. He's no respecter of angels. Right? If God didn't spare the ancient world but brought the flood. It's the second example. And then in verse 6 of that chapter, he gives the the last example. If God didn't spare the great twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but rather turned them into ashes, then God, he says in verse 9, and this is my paraphrase, he says, trust me, God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He's no respecter of persons. It, even if he lingers in, but, through his patience in bringing that judgment. We look at the outer appearance of people and we doubt God's threat of judgment, but God doesn't look at the outer appearance. He looks at the heart. He looks at your heart, my heart. And he delights in those who fear him. As the psalmist has said in Psalm 147, 10 through 11, his delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. That's who the Lord delights in. Isaiah 66 two says something very similar but this is the one to whom I look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I think we mistakenly think in a democratic society that a simple majority determines truth. I think we also tend to think that if something is legal in the land, then it must be right and it must be true. Right? If you remove God's law, what is left? Only the law of the land or the simple majority to determine what is right and, right and wrong. But let me tell you, God is not subject to polls or approval ratings and don't let numbers determine truth. God brought eight people through the flood. Eight people. I think we think surely God wouldn't do that, right? Right? But God doesn't look at majorities, he looks at the truth, and his threats are not idle. Secondly here, if God's threats are not idle, and we, we see that here in the flood, then the other opposite, equal opposite truth is here for us to cherish for those of us who believe that God's promises are true. I think the whole structure of the flood story was written to highlight this point. The whole structure of it was was written to highlight this point that God's promises are true. Uh, if you were to read through this story from the beginning of uh, beginning in chapter six and going all the, all the way through chapter eight, you'll notice there's a lot of repetitive details in, in the way that. Moses wrote down the story, um, and one thing I, I learned from studying it, kind of as a whole, is that the story is actually structured very intentionally in such a way that it's emphasizing one point. Uh, there was a, a common storytelling technique in the ancient world that is often referred to as a chiasmus, and it's na- that's named after the Greek letter chi, which to us looks like the letter X, right? And the reason that they call it this is because it, it's a st- when you tell a story in this way, the, you begin with a, a detail and then the end of the story has a parallel detail that's very, very similar. And you kind of step into the middle with parallel details and you're stepping in and the point of the story is right smack dab in the center where the, where the X meets. And I, the reason I point this out is because I think for us as Westerners, we think very linearly in a, in a straight line. There's the beginning, and the main point is usually at the end, right? But I think here that, that really what was trying to be emphasized here occurs right in the middle of the story. Um, I don't know if you'll be able to read this. Probably not. The print is too small, but that's okay. Um, you see at the, be- at the beginning of the, the flood story that God resolves to destroy the corrupt race. That's sort of the the top detail there. Now if you skip down to the bottom of the story, we're going to see that the Lord will resolve not to destroy humankind again, and he gives the rainbow. You know that detail? Right, and then as you step in, you'll see here that Noah built an ark according to God's instruction, and at the end of the story, Noah builds something else. He builds an altar. As you step in a little bit further, the Lord commands the remnant to enter the ark, and at the end of the story, God commands the remnant to leave the ark. Step in a little bit further. The flood begins. At the end of the story, the Earth dries out. Step in further, the flood waters prevail for 50 days. I'm, I'm sorry, 150 days, and the mountains are covered. On the back end of the story, the flood recedes and for 150 days, and the mountains become visible. It's very repetitive. But right here at the middle of all of this shines Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1. It's the very center of the story and it, it stands out uh, as if it had been highlighted here where God says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. God remembered Noah. Right? In the midst of the storm, God remembered him. I think sometimes we, uh, we, we think that just making it on the ark was sort of like the finish line for Noah. Right? Have you ever thought that? Like, like, I mean, you can kind of picture you've spent all this time preaching righteousness. Nobody's listening to you. Right? The animals are, are coming on the ark. You get in there. God himself closes the door, the flood's come, and you're proven right, and you're like, "Whoo! I made it, right? I didn't die. We think that's sort of the finish line. But if you think about it, I think that going through the flood itself must have been quite the trial for Noah and his family. Um, I, I, I wonder, as they were being blown and tossed by the waves as... They were realizing that the entire world, all their friends, anyone that they knew, everything that they knew was being washed away by the flood. I suspect that they must have been wondering if after all this, that they too might be sunk. I wonder, did Noah and his family ride on the ark as if it were a cruise ship? Enjoying it like a re- in a recreational sort of way? No, they didn't. I think Noah was probably in there with his family, especially for the first half when the, when the floodwaters were rising. I think they were praying, Lord, remember me here in the midst of this storm. I don't think that the boat was a real a place you would want to be. In, in a lot of ways, it may have resembled like a giant coffin. It was, wo- it was wood, right? And it, There was one window in it, in the top, a skylight. I don't know if I'd want to be in there for over a year wondering, God, are you going to remember me? Am I going to make it through this experience? Are we going to run out of food? Is the lion going to eat me? I don't know, right? Lord, remember me. Have you brought me to this point only to sink me now? Lord, remember mercy in your judgment. Can you identify with that? I think for those of us who have trusted in Christ, almost as if we've loaded up on the ark, which is the cross. and We're still awaiting final deliverance, right? And we cry out to the Lord when we're going through storms and trials in life, and, and we are having to trust that, no, God is going to protect me. God is going to be true to his promises. He's not, he hasn't brought me this far just to sink me and to drown me and to leave me here. Can you identify this morning with Noah on the ark praying, God, remember me in your mercy, God, in your judgment. Remember steadfast love, faithfulness for your steadfast love and faithfulness are from of old, Lord. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, but Lord, remember your, your faithfulness. Remember your love towards me, God, don't forsake me. And that's why I say at the center of this story here is this wonderful uh, turn of events where it says, "But God remembered Noah." It reminds me of Ephesians chapter two, where Paul paints a very bleak picture of our uh, of our deadness and in, in our spiritual spiritual deadness before God. And yet, but God, by His grace and His mercy, made us alive. God is faithful to his promises. And I, I think as the, the floodwaters went up, it must have been quite frightening. But then to begin to see here as God remembers Noah and God sends a, a wind across the waters and, and the, the waters begin to recede, how I, I just can imagine that Noah's hopes must have sort of revived and gone up during this process of watching the waters recede. It says in the text here that in the seventh month, on the 17th day, the ark came to rest down on Mount Ararat. And for me, that would have been a good, good news because I get seasick. So to, to be at least not moving anymore, that would have been wonderful. And yet still they continued to wait. They didn't come out of the ark even though they were on the, the top of the mountain there. And then it says in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, that they could actually look out and see the tops of mountains. Waters are receding, but still they continue to wait on the Lord. And then after 40 days, Noah begins to send out birds through the skylight that he had made. First, he sends out a raven, which, by the way, was a ceremonially unclean animal in the Mosaic Law. And the raven does not come back. He just flies around to and fro until the waters dry up. So Noah then, he waits a while and then, He turns to a dove instead, which is a clean animal. And he ends up sending the dove out three times. First time, the dove can't find any place to land, so it returns to Noah. So Noah waits seven days, and then he sends out the dove again. This time, the dove returns with a freshly plucked olive leaf or olive branch in its beak. It's probably hard to imagine just how promising of a sign that must have been to Noah. Right, to receive that, that sign that, wow, not only are the waters receding, but things are beginning to grow. And really, to this day, the, the emblem of a dove holding an olive branch still symbolizes peace and hope, and help. I really don't think there's, uh, I don't think it's an accident that the Holy Spirit is, is viewed as, uh, takes the form of a dove, uh, I think there's some correspondence there. And then thirdly, here, uh, Noah sends the dove out again after seven more days. And this time the dove doesn't even return because the waters have completely receded. However, despite all this bird reconnaissance, they still don't get out of the boat, out of the ark. They don't finally depart from the ark until God tells them to. Uh, If you look at chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, you see here God commanding them, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out. He, He finally gets out of the ark and I sort of have this image of the of the uh, door opening, you know, it's kind of just, you know, I see steam, you know, and just like this wonderful, glorious new world out before him. And I picture Noah running out of the ark and just falling to the ground and kissing the earth. But I don't, I and mean, it doesn't say that in the text, right? Dry ground. But that's not what the text emphasizes. The text emphasizes that Noah came out of the ark and he built an altar And he worships. He worships the Lord. His heart is filled with thankfulness and joy for the great salvation that God has wrought for him. You know, just as surely as God knows how to bring judgment on those who do not believe, God certainly knows how to save the godly who do believe and trust in him. I think Noah's example here of waiting until God commanded him to come off the ark is a wonderful example to us. You know, we often say, you might be tempted to say even in your own heart, man, I haven't heard from God in a while. <laughs> we haven't heard from God in a while since since Jesus and uh, the apostles moved off the scene. Uh, Lord, where, where are you? But I think like Noah, we can busy ourselves and be about the work that God has clearly given to us. He has spoken to us. It's sort of, I think, as I step back now, I've I've been studying Noah for several weeks now, and I think the the lasting mark of Noah's example that will mark me moving forward is, is this, that Noah was given specific instructions and told to do certain things at at specific times in his life, and then there were vast stretches of time where I don't think he heard from the Lord. And yet, through great trial and suffering even, he continued to trust in the Lord and to simply do what was right, what God had told him to do. And I think we can do the same thing. God has clearly told us to to prepare for the coming of the Lord, to (coughs) repent of our sins and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, He's told us who do believe to be about the Great Commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He's given us things to do. And uh, I think we are to be about those things until he returns. I came across this hymn yesterday that Alistair Begg recently shared at a pastor's conference. And it's a hymn that was written by a pastor for pastors but I think it applies to all of us today. I just want to read it to you here in closing. It says, Courage, brother. Do not stumble. Though thy path be dark as night, there's a star to guide the humble. Trust in God and do the right. Let the road be rough and dreary and its end far out of sight. Foot it bravely, strong or weary. Trust in God, trust in God, trust in God and do the right. Perish policy and cunning, perish all that fears the light, whether losing, whether winning, trust in God and do the right. Trust no party, sect, or faction, trust no leaders in the fight. Put in every word or action, trust in God, trust in God, trust in God and do the right. Some will hate thee, some will love thee, some will flatter, some will slight. Cease from man and look above thee, trust in God and do the right. Simple rule and safest guiding, inward peace and inward might. Star upon our path abiding, trust in God, trust in God, trust in God and do the right. I think this hymn sums it all up. Trust God and do what's right, my friends, whether it's for the first time or the 10,000th time. When you think of the story of Noah, remember the eight, and remember and know with all your heart that what God says, that very thing he will do. God's threats are not idle, and his promises are true.